Snap Nation. I'm going to put it just like this. Y'all are incredible. People are stepping up to keep storytelling that matters on the map at snapjudgment.org. Thank you for being a part of this. If you haven't reached for your checkbook yet, let me tell you something. You want to be part of this community because snappers are the coolest, most interesting, sexiest, thoughtful folk on the planet. Are you with us? Support Snap Storytelling at snapjudgment.org. Join this team. Every donation, no matter how small, counts, and no matter how big, if you know what I'm saying. Snapjudgment.org. Thanks. I grew up knowing that the empty seat at our Thanksgiving table belonged to my grandfather. A violent altercation on a trip a long time ago. No one knew if they were officially members of the clan, but that didn't change the fact I never got to meet him. Just black man down, bow your head, pay your respects. Maybe that's why I loved him so fiercely. The old folks told me that I shared his respect for words, that my stride down the street mirrored his to the T, that I should know my large forehead was borrowed. Him, my hero, the ghost. Then I asked my grandmother for the thousandth time to tell me about her husband, And I don't know why she finally said what she said then. I don't. She and I, alone in the room she went to die, she told me that my grandfather was a bad man that treated her in a bad way. And she thought there was no greater evil in all the world until that band of devils met him on the side of a southern highway. No, Granny. And gave him what he didn't quite deserve. No, Granny. Not because of his evil, Granny. Because he, a light-skinned black man, almost but not quite white, stopped in exactly the wrong place to ask for help for his flat tire. Granny. Granny. She never spoke about it again. Never spoke on this side of the veil. And I never stopped thinking, imagining who my hero really was. Who he was really. That night he stepped out of his car and met the clan. Well, today on Snap Judgment, We're not going to break down on the side of the road. No, 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 no. But from a nice cocoon of radio safety, we're going to look this horror in the eye. Snap Judgment proudly presents The Clan. Amazing stories from real people dealing with some of the oldest hate we have. My name is Glenn Washington. Now you know why I can't even wear bathrobes when you're listening. To snap judgment. We start off in Maryland, where Snap's own Nick Vanderkoek landed to meet a guy by the name of Daryl Davis. Now, fair warning, 
This piece does use a word that is not appropriate for polite company. Actually, the word's not appropriate for company of any type whatsoever. Snap judgment. Nineteen eighty-three, country music had made a resurgence in this country. So I joined a country band. I was the only black guy in the band, and consequently, usually the only black guy in many of the places where we played. Well, there was this truck stop in a place called Frederick, Maryland. Truck stop had a motel. In the bottom of the motel was this lounge called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And it was basically an all-white lounge. Black people did not go in there. First time I played there, I came off the bandstand after the first set and I was walking across the dance floor to sit with some of my bandmates. And this white gentleman, probably in his mid to late 40s, gets up from his table and walks across the bandstand from behind, puts his arm around my shoulder. And I stopped and turned around and looked to see who's touching me. And he says, I really like your all's music. You know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. I had no idea where this guy was coming from. And I naively and innocently asked him, where did you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play? And he says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, Jerry Lee learned how to play that style from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rockabilly and rock and roll came from. Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry Lee invented that. I never heard no black man play like that until you. I even told the guy, I know Jerry Lee Lewis personally. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him since I was 13 years old. He's told me himself where he learned how to play, or the guy didn't buy it. But he was fascinated with me, and he wanted to buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink, but I agreed to go back to his table and have a cranberry juice. He says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy is really having a night of firsts here. I asked him, I said, why? And he didn't answer me. He stared at the tabletop. And his buddy elbowed him in the ribs and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. Now he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I started laughing. I figured, okay, this guy thinks I'm jerking him around about Jerry Lee Lewis, so he's gonna jerk me around about the Klan. While I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and hands me his Klan card. His looked like it had a Klansman uh, on horseback, and then on the other side was this red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center, which is the Ku Klux Klan insignia. It's called a Mayoke, or blood drop emblem. I stopped laughing, because I recognize that stuff. You know, this is for real. So now I'm wondering, what the hell am I doing sitting at a table with a Klansman? And I gave him back his card, and we talked about some other things. The guy gave me his phone number. He wanted me to call him anytime I was to come back to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his buddies, right? His, his clan buddies to see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. We were on a rotation at that club every six weeks, you know, with other bands. So I called the guy like on a Wednesday or a Thursday and say, hey man, um, I'm gonna be at the uh, Silver Dollar, come on out. He'd come, and he'd bring his Klansmen and Klanswomen friends, and they'd gather around and watch me play. They'd get out their 
on the dance floor and dance. There were some who didn't want to meet me, you know, they were kind of standoffish, just like, you know, watch me from afar, but I knew it was them. Others, you know, were, were curious and wanted to, you know, and they shook my hand and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, this went on about every six weeks until the end of 83, at which time um, I quit the clan. I mean, I quit the clan. I quit the band. <laughs> Get that right. Freudian slip there. Okay. <laughs> um, I quit the band and I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and, you know, whatever genre was popular in 84. And so, you know, I lost contact with the guy. Music is my profession, but learning more about racism on, on all sides of the tracks was my obsession. I began collecting everything I could get my hands on that dealt with white supremacy, black supremacy, anti-Semitism, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, things like that. It was incomprehensible to me that someone who had never seen me before, someone who knew absolutely nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. They didn't know anything about me. I hadn't done anything. And the question that I had back then was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That question stayed with me. Eight years later, I decided I want an answer to my question. So, I'm gonna interview all these racists. I need to write a book. So I chose the Klan because man, I could have chose, you know, the Nazis, but I had made some kind of relationship with this Klansman. So I'm gonna track down that Klansman from the Silver Dollar Lounge. He had moved. He did not have a phone, but he had an address. So unannounced, I went by his apartment one evening. Okay, I knock on the door, right, in this hallway, and um, he opens the door. He says, Daryl, what are you doing here? And he steps out into the hallway and looks up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me, right? Well, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turns around, he comes back in. He goes, what's going on, man? Are you still playing? What's going on? I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing, man. But listen, I need to talk to you about the clan. I said, you remember, right? He goes, well, I was. He said he'd quit and he went into this long story. Well, I said, where's all your clan stuff? And he says, well, they came and got it. Apparently, he had not paid off his robe and hood and they came and repoed it. And I said, do you know Roger Kelly? Yeah, I know Roger. Roger was my grand dragon. In their terminology, they called the state leader the grand dragon. I asked him to hook me up with the Grand Dragon. And he said, no, he couldn't do that. And I said, but wait a minute, you, you know, you're, you're out of the clan now. He goes, it doesn't matter, Daryl. But I begged and pleaded with him to give me Mr. Kelly's uh, information. Well, 20 minutes later, he finally consented to giving it to me on the condition that I not reveal to Mr. Kelly where I got his home address and his home phone number. He warned me, he said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. Uh, Roger Kelly will kill you. I called my secretary who booked my band. Mary worked here out of my house. I said, here, give uh, Roger Kelly a call and tell him you're working for somebody who's writing a book on the Klan. Would he consent to sitting down and being interviewed? Do not tell Mr. Kelly 
that I'm black. Unless he asks. If he asks, don't lie to him. But don't allude to it. Don't give him any reason to ask. And so um, I had her call. And um, he agreed. We set up the meeting for the motel right above the Silver Dollar Lounge. And at 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon, Mary and I got there early. I gave Mary some money and I sent her down the hall to get some soda and put it in the ice bucket so I would be able to offer my guest a beverage. I had no idea what this man was going to do when he saw me. You know, was he going to freak and attack me because I'm black? Was he going to say, I'm not talking to you and turn around and leave? Or was he going to come in and be interviewed like he had agreed to do? I was not armed. My secretary was not armed. Right on time, knock, knock, knock on the door. Mary hops up, runs around the corner, and opens the door. In walks the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk in clan terminology means bodyguard. He's wearing military camouflage fatigues, the Ku Klux Klan insignia, and on his right hip, he had a gun. Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind this guy in a dark blue suit. The Nighthawk turns the corner, and upon seeing me, he freezes instantly. Mr. Uh, Kelly bumped into his back, and they stumbled around, you know, trying to regain their balance, looking all over the room like, uh-uh, something's wrong here. I get up, and I walk over. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. Put my hand out. My name is Daryl Davis. He shook my hand. So far, so good. I said, come on in, come on in. The Nighthawk shook my hand. Mr. Kelly sat down. I'm like, I'm like yes, you know, he's going to do it. And the Nighthawk stood at attention to his right. Right before I could sit down, Mr. Kelly says to me, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? And I said, yes. And I reached into my wallet and pulled out my driver's license and gave it to him. And he says, oh, you live on uh, Flax Street in Silver Spring. Well, now that had me a little concerned. Why is this man reciting my street address? He doesn't need to know that. I don't need him coming here burning across on my lawn. I didn't want to let him know that he had, you know, slightly unnerved me or rattled me. But I, but I want to let him know that, you know, don't screw around. So I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live. And you live at, and I named his house number and his street. We started doing the interview. And everything, you know, was going along smooth. I mean, every now and then somebody might pound the table with their fist to make a point. Every time Mr. Kelly would say, well, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, you know, I'd reach down into my bag and pull out the Bible and hand it to him to show me where it said blacks and whites had to be separate. Or if my cassette ran out of tape, I'd reach down into the bag and pull out my cassette and, and refresh the, uh, the recorder. Every time I reached down, the Nighthawk would reach up to his gun. A little over an hour into this interview, there was a strange noise, kind of like I immediately jumped up out of my chair and slammed my hands on the table. My mind was racing like you know, 90 miles an hour trying to think, what did I just say? What did I just do to cause him to go off and make some weird noise? And all I could hear in the back of my head was, that former Klansman saying, Daryl, 
do not fool with Roger Kelly. Roger Kelly will kill you. All right. So I didn't want to die that day. And I'm getting ready to come across that table, grab the Nighthawk and Mr. Kelly, and slam them both down to the ground and disarm the Nighthawk. My eyes locked with Roger Kelly's eyes. My eyes were clearly saying, what did you just do? And I could read his eyes. What did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between both of us, like, what did either one of y'all just do? Mary, she was over here sitting on top of the dresser. She realized what happened. And then it made that same noise again. Some of the ice cubes in the ice container melted, the ice bucket melted, and the cans of soda shifted. We all began laughing at how ignorant we were. We continued with the interview and there were no more problems. Uh, at the end, I shook their hands and thanked them for their time. And Mr. Kelly gave me uh, one of his clan cards. And um, he said, keep in touch. And I was thinking to myself, I didn't say it, but I was thinking to myself, what? You know, I didn't come here to make friends with the clan. I came here to find out, you know, how can you hate me when you don't know me? And he didn't like me. I mean, he told me as much. On the way back home, I said to Mary in my car, I said, you know, I rather like Roger Kelly. I like him as a person. I do not like what Roger Kelly stands for. But I found that we had more in common than we did in contrast. Basically, what we had in contrast was how we each felt about race. Other than that, we agreed on, on, on a lot of things in common. We need to get drugs off the street. We need better education for kids. Things like that, you know, we can agree upon. So whenever I had a gig up in his county, I'd call him and say, hey man, I'm playing here or playing there. Come on out. He'd come. He'd bring the Nighthawk with him, but he'd come. Sometimes I would invite him down here. He'd come down here. He'd sit right over there on the couch. Sometimes I would invite over some of my Jewish friends, some of my black friends, some of my other white friends, just to engage Mr. Kelly in conversation with somebody other than me. I didn't want him to think that I was some exception. I wanted him to talk to other people. After a while, he began coming down here by himself. No Nighthawk. He trusted me that much, all right? After a couple years, he became uh, Imperial Wizard. He was elevated from state leader to national leader, Imperial Wizard. He began inviting me to his house. Welcome to this final hour of CNN Sunday Morning Friendship can transcend all kinds of boundaries. Just look at us. And two men in Washington area are showing that even an African-American man and a member of the Ku Klux Klan can find common ground. CNN's Carl Rochelle reports. Davis is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. I got more respect for that black man than I do you white niggers all out right. We get to know one another and we do different things, you know, it's... It hasn't changed my views about the Klan, you know, because my views on the Klan has been pretty much cemented in my mind for years. And I believe in separation of the races. I believe that's in the best interest of all races. I'm a far right man to hell I'm back, because I believe in what he stands for and he believes in what I stand for. A lot of times we don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. In Washington, I'm Carl Rochelle. CNN Sunday morning.
you have an adversary, an opponent with an opposing point of view, give that person a platform, regardless of how extreme it may be. And believe me, I've heard some things so extreme at these rallies, they'll cut you to the bone. If you agree with them, great, no problem. If you don't agree with them, that's fine too. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. So he and I would sit down and listen to one another. Over a period of time, that cement that he talked about that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble. And then it fell apart. And then a few years ago, Roger Kelly quit the Ku Klux Klan. He no longer believes today what he said on that videotape. Okay? And when when he quit the Klan, he gave me his robe and hood. This is the robe of the Imperial wow. Wizard. When the three Klan leaders here in Maryland, Robert White, Roger Kelly, and Chester Doles, and I became friends with each one of them. When the three Klan leaders here in Maryland left the Klan and became friends of mine, that ended the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Today, there is no more Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. They've tried to revive it every now and then, but it immediately falls apart. Do you think there's a danger at all that there's some sort of like tacit approval happening? That he can sort of point to you and be like, hey, this black guy, we're cool, so therefore my separatist beliefs are right. Some of them might feel that way, yeah, sure. I, mean, I know where I stand, and I never let it, you know, you know, let it be, be questioned. Right. I mean, they know that I do not, I do not approve of, uh, of separatism or supremacy or whatever, but um, I have no problem sitting there, you know, shaking their hands. I maintain my beliefs. Have you ever gotten criticism from black folks? Or uh, black of course, people? absolutely. Now, you know, black people who are friends of mine, who know me, understand where I'm coming from. Some black people who have not uh, heard me interviewed or, or who have not read my book, some of them jump to conclusions and prejudge me, just like the Klan. You know, I've been called an Uncle Tom. I've been called an Oreo. Uh, I had one guy from an NAACP branch chew me up one side and down the other saying, you know, we've worked hard to get 10 steps forward. Here you are sitting down with the enemy having dinner and you're putting us 20 steps back. I pull up my robes and hoods and say, look, this is what I've done to put a dent in racism. I've got robes and hoods hanging in my closet by people who've given up that belief because of my conversations of sitting down to dinner and, and they gave it up. How many robes and hoods have you collected? And then they shut up. Thank you, Daryl Davis. And you know that we love a diversity of opinion on the snap. We do. But, but if you ever, 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 ever see me up on stage with anybody from the Klan, the alt-right, the neo-whatever they want to call themselves, understand I have been kidnapped. Call the authorities at once. Ask them to send help to come get your boy. All right? Now, Dale, he wrote a book about his experiences called Clandestine Relationships. 
There's a new movie coming out about Daryl called Accidental Courtesy later this year. The original sound design for that story was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Nick Vanderkull, who now produces the Love and Radio podcast. And Nick has an update to this story about Daryl Davis at Love and Radio. You can check it out at Love and Radio, wherever you get your podcast. Okay, so think about it. Where else are you going to hear from the black dude that hangs out with the Ku Klux Klan? Where else? Nowhere else. If this type of story is the one you're going to talk about to your husband, your wife, your neighbors, your friends, Snap us, it's in you. Be a part of it. Support Snap Storytelling at snapjudgment.org. The clock is ticking. We have just a short period of time. Donate now at snapjudgment.org. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Klan episode. Today, we're examining one of America's oldest stains. Chrissy Chan, the American-born daughter of Chinese immigrants, she'd always taken her American identity for granted. Until the day her parents decided to move to a new town. When I was a kid, I grew up in a rural suburban part of Virginia, and my parents were Chinese immigrants, and we moved there because my parents found their dream home. In, uh, in Chinese culture, it's really important to be able to own the home that you live in, and they found this town full of little houses around lots of farmland, and everywhere they looked, there were these bright, patriotic-looking flags, and I think they must have just seen this town and thought, what a dream come true. So we ended up moving to this town when I was seven, and it was very hard to adjust to that town because we were told in many ways that we were unwelcome. We also realized that these bright, cheerful flags that we thought looked so patriotic were actually Confederate flags. And my parents did not speak English, so one of my jobs was to be the translator of the family. Day-to-day things were actually pretty difficult, like going to the store. You know, you're constantly being confronted. One question that we were constantly being asked was people would just stop us on the street and say, what are you? I think I always considered myself American. It never occurred to me that I wasn't. And when we were accused of not belonging there, I think I was just very confused. Like, I didn't know how to respond. And it was just constant confrontation. And all the while, my parents weren't really that worried because I think when you don't speak the language in a strange way, it protects you from things that you're better off not knowing. One of the things that started happening right away when we moved to this town was that a lot of the local church groups started soliciting and knocking on the door and saying, hey, you're new to town, why don't you guys join our church? And it was a very sort of aggressive soliciting. Um, And around the same time, we started getting these letters in the mail. And the letters looked very formal, and they had crosses on them, so we thought they were from a church. And the top of the letter always had the words Ku Klux Klan. The first letter that we got, I recall them saying that this community was for white Christians, 
and non-white Christians were not welcome. So once these letters started coming, I was trying to translate them for my mother, and they were actually pretty difficult to translate, as you can imagine, because um, Ku Klux Klan is not a word that you say a lot when you're seven or eight, and even the words white supremacist are not words that you use. Um, But nonetheless, I would do my best to try to translate these letters. I knew that they didn't like us, but I didn't know the history of the Ku Klux Klan. I was especially curious about the fact that these letters were sometimes signed by someone called the Wizard. But because the letters kept coming and I would say, oh, there's another one, at some point, you know, I think she just wanted me to keep myself busy. So my mom said something like, well, why don't you just write them back then? And at the same time, we were doing pen pals at school and kids were getting assigned other pen pals from other countries, you know, pen pals in Sweden, pen pals in Spain, and I thought, I have a wizard for a pen pal. And my letters would start off saying, Dear Wizard, we're really nice. Please be our friend. I tried to make the letters look as beautiful as possible, and I would draw pictures on them. I put glitter on the letters sometimes. Stickers were big, and kids were trading stickers, and and I was saving my best stickers for, for the wizard. They really were done as though they were a gift to them. I just imagined that once they read my letters and were taken with them, that I'd soon be hanging out with a wizard, um, that we'd be eating pizza together, that we'd be, I don't know, riding bikes together, listening to Madonna together. There was one evening where both my parents were working late and um, we'd always been instructed that when the kids were home by ourselves, you don't answer the door, you turn the lights out and you pretend no one's home. And I can remember specifically there were two occasions where we just heard a lot of people gathered on our porch banging on the door and it was the sound of sound of men sound of voices we just did what we were told we um, turned the lights out we got really quiet we were giggling and we thought it was hysterical that we were pretending that we weren't home I started to suspect that everyone was in the Ku Klux Klan because their symbol was a cross and as far as I knew our town was full of crosses and um, and people wore crosses and so it did start to feel like who is the KKK where are they So the more we were trying to ignore the real world of what was going on, the more it made sense to try to get through to this wizard guy and get him to use his wand or whatever and say, hey, everybody, these people are great. I think sometimes people just get used to having you around. And it didn't hurt that my dad opened a restaurant. So this restaurant was a Hawaiian-themed restaurant. But it actually served Chinese food. You got laid when you got there and the chairs had palm trees on them. So it was, it was not subtle at all. It was very much, hey, we're Hawaiian, <laughs> parentheses, not from another country, don't worry, eat our food. And it was just such a hit, and people loved the restaurant that it helped us gain acceptance because we were the people that served that amazing Hawaiian food, which wasn't really Hawaiian food. And then, like most kids do, I made um, actual friends. So I didn't need this mysterious wizard anymore because I'm sending them what I think are these beautiful letters, and we we just kept getting these mean letters back. I think I I started to notice that they never asked anything about me. Um, It was always about what they wanted, and when you send someone a sticker, they're supposed to send some back. The real kids were were much more interesting. 
So at some point, the letters actually stopped coming. So for me, this meant that either the letters worked or that they had moved on to someone else. So whether or not a little bit of magical thinking was involved, I'll never know, but it didn't ever occur to us to move to another town and to not live here in, in this country. Because what is more American than to make it work? Big thanks to Christy Chan for sharing her story on the snap. Anyone who can make friends with the KKK will always have a friend in snap judgment. Ah, ah. I mean, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. The sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, when Snap Judgment, the Clan episode continues, somebody is locked and loaded. And a hint, it ain't the good rabbi. All this and so much more in just a moment. Stay tuned. The clock, she is ticking. Don't let the clan win. Don't put on a hood and terrorize little girls. No, no. Instead, support Snap Judgment Storytelling at snapjudgment.org. Right? Snapjudgment.org. From WNYC, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Clan episode. My name is Glenn Washington. Now, understand, no episode of this type would be complete unless we included one of the most requested Snap Judgment stories of all time. Snap producer Anna Sussman spoke to a good rabbi who moved from New York City to Lincoln, Nebraska. Snap Judgment. I was uh, married to uh, Julie, and we went out there uh, together. The culture is really different than the East Coast. Uh, It's a little slower, and people are more reticent in that part of the country. But overall, it's a really pretty nice place to live, and I, I really didn't have any cultural adjustment to make. Julie and I had purchased a house, and we were moving into uh, the house and unpacking one Sunday morning, and we had a, uh, a call from an unknown person. I picked up the phone and said hello, and he said, um, You'll be sorry you ever moved into that house, Jew boy. And uh, I did call the police and, and told them that I had received this threatening call, and a uh, A few minutes later, a patrol car showed up and a police officer took a report and he said that he thought he knew who might be behind it and uh, mentioned the name Larry Trapp. Larry Trapp had been uh, notorious in the community as a white supremacist, uh, hateful person. The police gave us instructions in a way, which was pretty troubling. They said, you know, tell your kids not to go back and forth to school in the same pattern. And a couple of days later, we received a package in the mail filled with about 50 or 60 items of racist material, brochures, white power organizations, and 
There was one picture I remember in particular of Dr. Martin Luther King with a gun sight imposed over his forehead, and the caption was, Our dream came true. I think the most chilling of all, there was a business card in that package that was a Ku Klux Klan business card that had on the back of it, the Ku Klux Klan is watching you, scum. And that was pretty scary. So I called the police again, and they came and took all this material and confirmed that they thought it was Larry Trapp. After a while, I started thinking that it might be a good thing to try to contact him. And so um, I got his phone number from a friend of mine who worked for the phone company. Uh, my plan was to see if he would talk to me. Maybe some good could come of it, or maybe I could just get it off my chest and say, leave my family alone. I dialed his number. When I called, I got an answering machine, and the, uh, the answering machine had a, a anti-ethnic diatribe against Asian people. And it just went on and on and on about how the Asians are just ruining America and they don't deserve any better than the blacks and uh, the Jews and all of that. And uh, it was disgusting. And then I decided, well, I'm just going to call and leave messages for him. And I became, uh, I guess, a little bit uh, obsessed with the idea of contacting him. And so I'd call. And when it said, um, you've reached the Ku Klux Klan, White power, if you're interested in membership, leave your number. And I would leave a little message, which I started calling love notes. One message was, Larry, there's a lot of love out there and you're not getting any of it. What's wrong with you? And I hang up. Another was, uh, why do you love the Nazis so much? They would have killed you first because you're disabled. Larry Trapp was a double amputee as a result of advanced diabetes at a young age who lived his life in a wheelchair. After several months of calling, I, I realized that I was doing a pretty strange thing. I called every Thursday afternoon at about 3 o'clock. I had appointments with children for bar mitzvah lessons at 3.30, and so I called just before that. After a while, I think Larry Trapp figured out who was calling him. And finally, one day, Larry answered the phone, and he started yelling and screaming at me. Why are you calling me? You're hassling me. I can't say what he said for a family radio program, but I said, I don't want to hassle you, Larry. I just want to talk to you. And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I heard you're disabled. I thought you might need a ride to the grocery. And there was a dead silence for a long time. And he finally came back on and said, um, I've got that covered. Don't call me anymore. This is my business phone. And uh, Larry Trapp still kept getting calls from me at 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon for another couple of months. And finally, on a Saturday evening, the phone rang. I picked up the phone, and, and he said, Is this the rabbi? And I said, uh, Yes, it is. Is this Larry Trapp? And he said, Yes, it is. I said, What can I do for you? He said, I want to get out of what I'm doing, and I don't know how. And I said, Would you like to talk about it? He said, Yes. I said, Well, I'll come over. I know where you live. So I hung up. My son stares and said, Dad, you can't go and see this guy. I said, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to pick up some chicken or something and go break bread with the guy. He said, you can't do that. When a Nazi wants to have you over for dinner, he means it literally. <laughs> 
But I did call a friend of mine before going, and he said, what are you, crazy? It could be an ambush. I said, look, if you don't hear from me by midnight, send the police, do you know what I mean? And Julie and I got in the car, and we drove to his house and uh, knocked on the door. And he opened the door. He's sitting in a wheelchair with a Mac-10 automatic weapon in his lap and a shotgun hanging off the corner of the wheelchair and a pistol in his lap as well. And I said, oh, my God, we're dead. But instead, he reached out his hand, and I shook his hand, and he burst into tears. And he began taking these rings off his fingers, and they were two swastika Nazi rings. And he handed them to me and said, take these away. They've caused me nothing but trouble all my life. And we talked and talked about what he had been doing and why he wanted to get out of it and the sort of childhood he had had, hiding under the bed so his father wouldn't beat him, which I'm convinced brought him to where he was in this hateful business. A constant tale of violence and racism and hatred and bigotry. He was doing this to try to make himself okay with his father who was that kind of person, but he did it with a vengeance. I mean, he had gotten himself elevated to a position of authority within the Ku Klux Klan. He was called the Grand Dragon of Nebraska. Strange. So Larry Trapp uh, determined that he was going to live a different way that night. And um, he asked me to take away all this literature and paraphernalia that he had around the house. Larry Trapp, he was not very old, but he had been sick a good part of his life. And he wasn't feeling very good one day, and he uh, was beginning to have kidney failure. Uh, Julie said, you know, maybe uh, we shouldn't abandon this guy, you know? And he's all alone in that apartment. What do you think about inviting him to come live with us? And so we moved him into uh, what had been our daughter's bedroom, and he was still functioning, you know, he was still living, but living like with a family. Uh, Julie actually took care of him. Uh, she gave up her job in order to take care of Larry Trapp, who needed some care and attention. It was uh, an unusual time, to say the least. During that time, Larry Trapp started bugging me about wanting to become Jewish. And I said, well, Larry, come on, you grew up a Catholic, why don't you just go to church? And he said, no, I had a miracle in my life and it came from Judaism. I said, no, Larry, it came from you. I had friends in the Christian ministry and I tried to palm him off on them, you know, and uh, Larry kept insisting he wanted to study Judaism. Well, we did have a ceremony uh, of conversion at the synagogue which Larry had been attending, by the way. He adopted Judaism and uh, lived the rest of his life in my house until one morning at about 3 o'clock he died. He lived in that house for nine months. It's almost like he went through that whole cycle of uh, birth again, and he died a better man than he lived. I was happy for him. His funeral took place at the uh, temple filled with mourners because Larry had done a lot of work in that nine months to try to make amends with people. And he was on the phone constantly calling people and apologizing and telling them he's sorry he hurt them. He spoke several times at the high schools against racism and he became a better kind of celebrity than he had been before. 
I felt like a member of the family had died. I think everybody in my family felt that way. You know, like everybody has a weird old uncle. He, he had become that guy in my family, you know, and well-loved. Thank you, Rabbi Weiser, for sharing your story. The Good Rabbi now heads up the Free Synagogue of Flushing, where he continues to teach tolerance. The original sound design was by Leon Morimoto, and the story was produced by Anna Sussman. Now, it's about that time. But if you need more stories in your life, we understand, Snappers. Just subscribe to the amazing Snap Judgment Podcast, where we like to say it is almost, almost impossible to hate someone if you know their story. The Snap Podcast is now available on Spotify, Snappers. Check that out. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get it, get it. And write a good review if you don't mind. Snap Nation, thanks. Snap was produced by the team that would take the clan out in a fight. We'll start off with one punch from the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. Karate Chop from Pat McCity Miller. Anna Sussman throws knives. Joe Rosenberg throws flowers. Davy Kim took off his boxing gloves. Nancy Lopez put hers on. Eliza Smith wants to talk it out. Don't eat whatever Adiza Egan, Liz Mack, and Leon Morimoto cooked up. And Jasmine Aguilera, she's nonviolent. Now, you may have understood that this is not the news. No way is this news. In fact, you could take all the Klan teachings, change a couple words, rebrand them as the alt-right, and you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. Yikes. But this is W-N-Y-C. Snappers, we think it's really, really hard to hate someone if you know their story. The problem is that we don't know other people's story anymore. The people down the street, down the hall, across the table. And this show, your show, is dedicated to fixing that one story at a time, one person at a time. Join this amazing community of givers and doers, life livers, storytellers, lovers, artists, magicians that make Snap possible. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing And thank you so much for your support at snapjudgment.org.